Hello, welcome. It's another Thursday evening in uh, quarantine land. Uh, it's time for another Thursday night, Real Monsters. I'm your host, S.K. Barrett. Joining me is the ever-talented Wes Hobrick. Hello, welcome. hello, hello. Welcome. How you doing? Oh, I'm not too bad. How are you? Doing all right. Doing all right. Having fantastic weather the last couple of days. Very good. Yeah, it's been storming like crazy here most every single day. Monsoon weather in Illinois. Oof. Yeah. Jeez. Yeah. Um, this is unusually good weather for this time of year. Usually from Memorial Day till Independence Day is pretty crappy. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, this is true. It's where you're at. I mean, maybe the stereotype's wrong about the Pacific Northwest. But, it's not. You know. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Well. But the joke is we have two seasons. Winter, then July and August. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well. Yeah, it's... I mean, it, the stereotype with the Midwest really isn't wrong either. It's just always volatile here with the weather. So. But, um... Yeah, speaking of that, with the news, actually, right before we were going on, um, yeah. the the former Cardinal pitcher, St. Louis Cardinals pitcher, Felipe Vasquez, who is um, sitting in prison right now for about 20 felonies related to a child sex case, they yeah. brought up another one against him. Oh. They said, yeah. So he's but, already convicted of the others? I'm pretty sure he might be sitting and waiting for that. Okay. But um, I would have to check it a bit clo more closely. But, yeah, they're bringing another one against him. So, and it's just all too bad, but. I don't, I, I just don't get, it seems like there's, every week there's new stories of child pornography and child sex rings and all this shit. And they've just, and they, they, cops where was it they canada sh shut down a big child sex trafficking ring that involved mm -hmm. uh you know school officials yeah i saw that I, it's I, great that they caught him but yeah yeah I, I mean absolutely i just don't understand the appeal of any of that no, I mean, I don't either, and the only reason that I write that stuff down is because it does kind of come un under our purview, oh, absolutely. as it were, but, yeah, um, yeah, I mean, there was another one this week, too, that was interesting for another reason. It really reminded me of um, Ian Brady and Myra Hindley, oh. and that's not just because it was England, Yeah, but you had these... Uh, two pedophiles who were married and the uh, wife was trying to help the husband rape a child. Jesus. And these were two, I think you give them time, they probably would have killed somebody if they weren't caught. Yeah, that's how, that was definitely the case with uh, Myra and, uh, oh yeah, what's his name? Ian. Ian and, yeah. and also Fred and Rose West. Oh yeah. I always forget about them, but yeah, them too. Absolutely. But, um, yeah, in the other stuff going on, of course, Minneapolis burning. Just sad. I mean, I 
I'm sure I've said it before, my relatives in Minnesota. I love that state. I do. I did some work there many years ago. Um, oh, yeah? Spent a lot of weeks there. Um, Not a place I would want to live at just because of the weather, but, I mean, I love the people in the state, and I love visiting. What was interesting is, is we stayed at the hotel that later was used for the parking garage scene in Fargo. Oh, nice. Yeah. Yeah, well, definitely recognize that place. Um, um, oh, that's awesome. Yeah, that's <laughs> actually that's actually where my uh, family on that side is from, is Moorhead, Minnesota, right across the Red River from Fargo. So, but um, yeah, and that whole George Floyd case, man. That's, that is bad news. And I was trying to understand that. I was trying to give people the benefit of the doubt, but I just don't see a reason you would ever put a knee on a suspect's neck. No. When he's down. No. And I could understand the back in some cases, but the neck, was he, I just don't was get he, it. He, I, I haven't even been able to bring myself to watch it. And he was cuffed. He was restrained. He was on the ground. And they still had the knee on him. But, you know, the thing that the thing that has been bugging me for a long time, for years, in fact, is this um, attitude among law enforcement that they have to protect, you know, the department from scandal. And it's like bullshit. You mm -hmm. do what's right. And that's how yeah. you get trust. Not from, I absolutely not from covering agree. shit up and and sweeping it under the rug. One thousand percent with you on that. Um, hopefully, the wider use of body cameras will, uh, you know, um, yeah. encourage that. But you know, I think other things that can help are like citizen review boards. You know, to work with them and you know, just uh, com more community policing too. But um, yeah, that whole thing. I thought uh, Fox News actually did an excellent job with how they were covering the riot there. They took a, a big section out of the article, and they um, were quoting a reporter who was on the ground from a uh, local Twin Cities outlet who was talking to these guys that were there with guns, but they were protecting the stores. Okay. Yeah. And they, yeah. they said, we don't agree with this looting, but we do agree with the protests. Yeah. yeah. They're, they're really hurting their own community by stealing uh, and burning uh, the local businesses, the small, you know, targets of a, a Minneapolis company, for, for yeah. crying out loud. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, I saw this. This literally happened in my backyard in Ferguson. And yeah. I am not far from there at all in St. Louis. I actually had a friend the night of the Ferguson riots who was a manager at a local business down there. He's also ex-military. He saw rioters coming near a store near his house, took his sidearm outside, fired a warning shot in the air, and it dispersed them. So. Yeah. Yeah, they do that really well. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it's, again, it's the good guys with guns, but it also reminded me of, 
what Mr. Rogers said before. When things get dark, look for the people who are trying to help. Yeah. Ned, it gives you a little bit of hope when you see that, I think. You know, taking a flat screen TV is not helping your cause. If yeah. Assuming your cause is justice for this murdered man, you know, stealing a flat screen TV is just not, you know, furthering that agenda. It's just, well, it, it's just yeah. fucking stealing. It's all it is. Oh, I, I couldn't agree more. And I really couldn't, but the question that I have with that, and I'm sure this will come out in time, how many of those people looting were actually from the area? When that happened in Ferguson, a lot of them who were arrested for that were from out of town. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's just there's no way to prevent there, there, that. Yes, there but. does seem to be a certain element that loves to dive in and cause mayhem when uh, these things happen. Yeah. The people who just want to watch the world burn. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah, and he had a couple of these that were kind of more funny. Uh, the Muskogee County, Georgia, DA, he filmed an illegal rap video with two guys who were doing donuts. In a county parking lot, and they were arrested. So I saw that, and <laughs> frankly, I wasn't really clear what the big deal was. No, it really wasn't. Just they, <laughs> they burned rubber in a parking lot, and <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, what's the big deal? I think that. They were trying to say something about uh, defacing or destroying government property, but it's like, so what? It wasn't that bad. No, but... no. I think somebody's being kind of petty and trying to undermine maybe a, you know, opposing candidate. Maybe <laughs> it could be. I'm not sure. But oh yeah, and then you had the. Uh, woman who was arrested for battering her boyfriend her excuse she said he quote liked it rough yeah um, does that does that work when a guy says it <laughs> uh nope nope equal protection people equal protection cuts both ways yeah if you are you know opposed to domestic violence you got to be opposed to it going both directions because it does I wonder how much of that's unreported when it happens against men. Most of it. I, I, I think I've seen numbers in the 80 to 90% of it is unreported. Wow. Man. But, oh, yeah, he had a uh, another interesting item. This one came out of St. Paul. And the uh, it actually involves the Church of Scientology, but not in the way you would think. There was a guy who was brought up on charges for shooting a mugger in a parking garage. And uh, it turned out he was a Church of Scientology employee, but they just dropped the charges against him. What? It sounded like pretty clear-cut self-defense to me with what happened. So the Scientology employee was the mugger? 
Oh, he was the guy who shot the mugger. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, oh, and then you had... Remember the uh, fire, the arson at the Kyoto Anime Studio last summer? Yes. Um, we talked about it on this segment of the show, I think. I think they we did. finally made an arrest with that. Really? Yep. This past week. Oh, and then the uh, last rather funny headline this one out of the Ukraine. A uh, woman was caught on tape taking her knickers, was the son's um, verbiage for that, taking her knickers off and using them as a face mask. <laughs> <laughs> After the person at the post office said, I'm not serving you without a mask. So, A for effort on that one, oh, I guess. Oh, yeah. I mean, come on. You know, yeah. you know what's what's crazy is is that um, it it it's this stupid mindset that you see all the time. It's nothing new, but these mm-hmm. you know these petty rule and petty rule enforcers that are more. I mean, it's just fucking TSA bullshit all over again, right? You know, yeah. Take your shoes off. Why? Well, one time, 20 years ago, some guy, you know, mm-hmm. you know, cover your face. Well, covering your face with most things is no better than not having a cover at all. Yeah, I mean, it really doesn't do a lot. Uh, personally, I think a lot of that is tied to property rights, too, once you get down to it. If you're talking about a private business that wants to mandate that, yeah, they should have every right to. Oh, absolutely. I'm just saying, if mm-hmm. you're gonna say, if you're gonna say you need to be protected, then make it not just some, you know, piece of satin <laughs> that mm-hmm. you pull off your ass, literally, because yeah. it, because it because it's fabric and it's over your face. <laughs> yeah. Probably won't do a whole lot. Yeah, uh, yeah that was at a uh, post office, too. So. I, have, I have a real problem with stupid rules. Yeah. Heard that. But, yeah, definitely. That was all I had for the news. Okay. This week. Another very strange case this week. Bizarre. Most definitely. And um, before we get into this one... Yeah. We need to make it clear to people, this, although the first incident happened in 1982, is still an active investigation with the NYPD's Arson and Explosives Squad, the ATF in New York City, Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives now, ATFE, and the U.S. Postal Inspection Service. Oh, yeah. So what that means is... They are holding quite a bit of info back. Right. Uh, and, uh, you know, you can't blame them on that. They have to have it as leverage if they ever do pull somebody in. Yeah, yeah, uh, but yeah. It, you can't, uh, you know, you can't be disclosing everything. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. When it's considered an open case. And it's, what, 38 years? Yeah. Yeah, till the first one, but that also means that a lot of what we had to do 
with the sources with this was cobble it together. And it, what I have are about oh, 25 different news articles is what I wow. use to get all this info. Um, and all of them share, you know, different pieces of what's happening. But I'll do my best to present it. Cool. Um, Be sure and let me know what images you want to see. Sure. As we're going uh, along. If it's not you know, real clear. <laughs> let's do, yeah, let's do that. Um, let's start with the image of the house in Brooklyn. I believe it has a black time stamp and date stamp under it. Ooh. And to, to start people off, to get you in the headspace, May 7th, 1982, it's the Friday before Mother's Day of that year. And we're in a um, modest, I guess you could say, middle-class neighborhood in Brooklyn, New York, one of the five boroughs. We're at the home of 54-year-old Joanne Kipp and her husband, Howard. They have a um, two children, one named Doreen, who lives in Connecticut, and another named Craig, who's 28 at the time, and lives literally a thousand feet from them, just around the corner in an apartment. Okay. Yep, that is their house. It's around um, four o'clock, and the Kips, Joanne and Howard, have plans to go off to their vacation home in Lake Hayward, Connecticut, that day. But it's around 4 o'clock, so Joan is on her way home from her job at a uh, local junior high school as a guidance counselor. And her husband, Howard, he's out in the uh, garage fiddling around with something around the house. And Joanne, she gets home. She takes her mail in. Everything looks fine. And she puts it on the table. And there's a package at the top. It's about this it's about roughly six by nine inches. Okay. And it, nothing looks amiss with it. So she takes a knife and she opens it, just like any other package. And it's a cookbook, right? Okay. I think we have a picture actually of the book that it is. I too. do have a picture. Um it was a cookbook ordered from Sears and Roebuck. She didn't order it, but she thought it might have been a gift for Mother's Day. Not an unreasonable assumption, right. considering the date and everything. So she sits down, opens it. Howard, meanwhile, is at the kitchen window on the side of the house, and he hears a loud explosion. He runs inside. There are three, or two bullets, rather, in his wife's abdomen. Whoa. And one lodged in the kitchen wall. So what does he do? He's freaking out at the time, of course, you know, just like any nervous husband would after seeing that. He takes her to the couch, lays her down, and calls 911 to get an ambulance there. Did he, and meanwhile... Was it obvious that it came from the cookbook? He, I'm sure he wasn't sure at the time. Okay. I mean, when your adrenaline's still running high, right? I think it would be, you know, reasonable to be in a little bit of shock with that. But um, he has her on the couch in there, 
and she is just laying there. She's bleeding out literally in front of him. And she looks at him and she says some pretty cryptic words. Sorry, I'm on the wrong page with that quote there. Wrote it down here. She says, Oh, crap. Me and my notes. She says, quote, Look what they did to me. And she goes on and says, There may be others. What? Okay. Yeah. So, so yeah. See, I could take that first one as just, you know, not necessarily meaning that she knew who it was, but just as like, um, you know, hey, look what they did to me. Mm-hmm. But then when you, that second sentence, that's mm-hmm. weird. That may say something, and it's going to go to a couple of the theories as to this bomber, Yeah. the more that we get into it. But the ambulance gets there, and they take her to the local Lutheran hospital. She dies three hours later on the operating room table with one of the of the uh, rounds in the shrapnel that got near enough to her heart mm. that it killed her. But, um, yeah, I mean, the police, they start investigating. Yeah, I mean, this. God, I'm still chewing on her words. It's... It sounds like she was had some kind of an inkling of who was behind it, doesn't it? It really does, and it could go a couple of different ways to a couple of different theories, though, which we'll get to. Okay. But the police, they get their, the New York, um, the NYPD bomb squad gets there to investigate this. They find the device is was hollowed out inside this cookbook. And what it consisted of, which we have some of the parts here, were two six-volt D batteries, wires over a metal plate that were looped into light bulb filaments. And these light bulb filaments were each looped into three separate steel barrels that were made from um, brake lines, which we have uh, pictures of, too. And the the reason that I fished those out, honestly, when I first read the brake line thing, it made me think of rubber. No, no, no. There's too much pressure. Mm -hmm. Right. They can be rubber. Yeah. I mean, that was the... uh, But they are flexible. ...bad writing with it. But... Um, brake lines, yeah. brake lines are a, a high pressure um, tube mm-hmm. with with uh, pressure va- um, couplings on each end, but they're flexible. Yeah, yeah, and it, the bolt, the barrels. These things served as the barrels for the three twenty two rounds that were in them. Three separate barrels, three twenty two rounds. And each of these had the light bulb filaments um, hooked in directly to the gunpowder beneath them. And the powder, they found the powder with these was double the usual amount of gunpowder in a 22 round. 
which there's a couple reasons I was trying to wrap my head around for that, which we can get to in a little bit here. But yeah, so basically what happens with that is they open, she opens the book, completes the electrical circuit and boom, all three of them fire. Mm -hmm. But now the text, the guys that examined this said they were surprised that all three of them fired. So there must have been. So they didn't elaborate on that with what I could find. But there must have been some flaw about it. Or maybe it's just because they hadn't seen a bomb like this. And that's because this isn't actually a bomb. It's a zip Uh, gun. It's a crude gun. It's not um, something like a pipe bomb. It's not an explosive device that shoots in all directions shrapnel. Right, right. And that's another thing that's very, very curious about this. Usually when you see bombs, they are meant for, like you said, maximum destruction. Yeah. Not the sort of surgical precision. Well, Unabomber's, uh, a lot of his were small personal explosive devices, right? Yeah, but small enough to where they would just kill one person. Um, I don't. I think so. I think he's because he would send he would send bombs to individuals that and mm-hmm. would ended up killing just the targeted person. Huh. In Interesting. Yeah. I didn't know that part about him. But um, yeah, there's still there's quite a degree of surgical precision with this anyway. But yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. The, but here's the thing, though. Even with well, I was going to say, you know, you would. Um, you take a risk of missing a person completely this way, but you, if you take into consideration the expected um, way a the victim would approach the bomb, in this case the cookbook, they would turn mm-hmm. it upside right, you know, yeah, and open the cover. So you have a pretty good idea how the victim is going to be oriented towards the device. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's the, you know, the vital thing there too. It wasn't just opening the package that caused the explosion. It was opening the book. Um, right. But this happened. And so the police, the investigators, they brought in, of course, the postal inspectors with this. Um, and later on the ATF as well. They're looking at this as just an isolated incident for the time being, right? Yeah, well, why why would you think anything else? Especially if there was no note. Mm-hmm. There was, actually. Oh, there was! And this leads into one of the first suspects that they had for Jones' murder. They found a note written on the uh, cover, or the inside cover, rather, of the cookbook. And it said, Joan... You're dead. Next, um, Howard. Next, Craig. And it had her name crossed off. And um, from there, basically, they took it. And it was all written. This is interesting because we've talked about handwriting analysis before on here. Yeah. I never knew until studying this because it's not a science. Once you get down to it, it's art. You're literally comparing pictures, right? True, true. And uh, looking for 
patterns. It's a lot of pattern recognition. Um, mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of different, very uh, subjective uh, interpretations of things. Mm-hmm. Slangs oh. that you can't just measure that shit. It's very much subjective. Oh, absolutely. But um, yeah, that like note a, is gonna... like a lot. A surprising amount of forensic uh, evidence is subjective. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh yeah. I mean, we we kind of have this idea from TV shows and shit that. Um, forensics, but it's all hard science. It's all hard science, and it really isn't. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, once you get down to it, though, I think there might be a bit harder of a base for something like, let's say, ballistics versus yes. handwriting analysis. But, um, yeah, that note, they actually started focusing on the father, on Howard and on Craig as wow. their first suspects with this, which is natural when you have this sort of murder. And um, Howard was very cooperative with them. He gave them the keys to his marine consulting company in Red Hook that he owned. Yeah. And um, he also even gave them his wife's diary. The guy was very open about it, about everything with that. But... What really made that all turn was on the day of Joan's funeral beforehand, the police drag in Doreen and subject her for upwards of three hours of questioning on the day of her mom's funeral, which just made no sense to me as a tactic. You know, this is the image of Doreen from that's taken from. A different the Brooklyn image. Spectator, I believe, which is, I don't know if they're still around or not. It was a third-party source I got it from, but I think it was labeled as from the Spectator. Yeah, that is Doreen. Um, and she said, her quote was, I felt harassed. And um, after all of that, they ended up finding legal counsel, and the legal counsel was helping keep the cops away. So that's what a good lawyer does. By the way, yeah. police come to ask you questions. You you give them one word answer. Lawyer. Lawyer. <laughs> yep. And and you know, I think that honest cops will understand that. They will understand, you know, your legal rights and they'll respect them. Yeah. Um, but I just I couldn't get over that. How incompetent do you have to be to do that because first of all they're going to be uber emotional anyway when you drag them in the day of the funeral but they did that and they pivoted a little bit after this when they couldn't dig up anything on howard and they went to the son craig and they had this handwriting analysis again block letters they compared it to Craig's, and you had one analyst who said that it's a match. But come to find out in this, in this pseudoscience of handwriting analysis, it's very hard, if not impossible, to match block letters to an individual conclusively. 
Absolutely. by their standards. And they um, ended up finding about four other experts. This was the state, not the defense, found four other handwriting experts that said, no, this isn't his handwriting. So, wow. Yeah. And in this, the guy who initially said it, the expert who initially said it, was employed by the Postal Service, apparently. I see. Um, and they also had a little bit of evidence with a uh, explosives canine handler who brought in a German shepherd that apparently alerted on one of Craig's socks, alerted on the uh, scent there, and um, alerted on the same scent with a uh, mechanism from inside the bomb. And the way that they actually did this, mm. they set out an array of them, is what they said. An array of these, you know, that looked the same, apparently. Um, but the problem there, there was a um, lawyer by the name of Abercrombie, who was a former prosecutor with it. Oh, yeah, he used to, he used to shop at his store. but this guy he said that the main problem there wasn't that the evidence was uncredible which it was it's that the experts were not credible ah well that neither this trainer was credible and neither was the handwriting guy yeah so (laughs) what do they do they dropped the murder charge that they had, and they dropped the federal mail tampering charge that they had him on. They um, actually released him on $750,000 bail, was what they uh, said it at before they dropped those charges. So, yeah, I mean, and it, the whole thing pretty much dead end from there. But... There was another suspect that came up in um, roughly 1983. And this was a guy by the name of Stephen Wavra, who was about, um, let's see, he was born in 1954, so about 29 at the time. He was a uh, former student at the uh, junior high where Joan Kipp was a guidance counselor. And he said that he didn't have anything against her, personally. But you look at his history, it's, yeah, it's out there. He was held back for two years at that junior high. He uh, got out, he spent about a year in the Air Force from 1972 to 1973. Okay. wasn't able to find out what capacity he served in in the military, what it, he, um, you know, actually did in the Air Force. But what, one was, year, though? One year, 1972 to 73. So was, they kicked him out. Essentially. They found out with medical, ex- with a uh, psychiatric examination that he suffered from paranoid schizophrenia. Ah. But this guy, he gets a little bit better as a suspect for um, my mind in looking at this. He also had a history of getting into a fight with an MP while he was in the Air Force. Okay. 
and making bomb threats to post offices. Oh. Yeah. Well, but there's a connection. It gets even better with this. The whole way that they even got a bead on this guy in 1983, they were investigating him for unrelated stuff. They went into his apartment, uh, I would assume for a search. They found bomb-making materials on his stove. And apparently they found a device that was similar to the cookbook. Okay, so <laughs> yeah, one of the problems that I have with the way the law enforcement and the press defines bomb-making materials is you could go into any guy's garage who knows how to make shit and fix shit, and you can call mm-hmm. it bomb-making materials. Uh I mean, this is true, but they also found a device that was similar to the book. Okay, if you ha- now if you find something that's constructed or partially constructed, that's a different mm-hmm. story. Yeah, but every, well, and this every, was you know every guy in my family has a garage full of wires and you know gasoline and fertilizer and batteries and nails you know mm-hmm. oh sure and, and yeah definitely types of different kinds oh my god is bomb making materials well no that's just household maintenance shit <laughs> well oh yeah i mean most definitely but yeah one of the other charges that they said was on his rap sheet yeah. was possession of noxious chemicals i couldn't find any clarification on that either hmm. what that even means but that was on there, and he spent, you know, a lot of time in prison throughout this. He was actually in prison when Kip died. But they had a theory with this, that he mailed the parts to his roommate, and his roommate constructed it. I don't know if that pans out, but, and it could be. But yeah. the saga of Stephen Wavra doesn't end there come 1995 when we get into the middle of when these other bombings are happening that which we'll talk about they found him in a brooklyn library with another bomb that was similar to the books but was filled with exacto blades as shrapnel okay they caught him in a library with a device with one i'm not sure if it was weaponized yet if it was ready to, you know, be used. Yeah. But they caught him with, again, something similar. Whoa. Yeah. And um, That's, the last... Yeah, that looks... That kind of makes you think he might be the guy, right? Yeah. And it really does. But the uh, last mention that I saw of this guy in the press was in 2002 when the New York Daily News caught up with him for an interview and he was in um, prison a federal prison in beaumont texas for possession of 22 shells by a felon oh they um gave him 90 months for that really seemed like yeah it seemed like quite a bit for just for just 22 shells ammunition yeah but 90 months yeah 
he also said he was going to write his own history of this case. So, but um, there's some more weird tie-ins with him with these other bombings too. But let's just keep him in mind and sort of table him a little bit as a suspect for now. Skip ahead from 1982 all the way to 1993. This was when our next package was delivered to retired New York City sanitation man, Anthony Lenza, at his home in um, Staten Island. And it was actually picked up by his relatives and brought to their um, vacation house in the Poconos, Pennsylvania, northeastern PA on the New York border. And um, they brought this one in, which was shaped like a um, coin case, a blue velvet coin case, which I think we have a picture of, too, just if people want to see that. Um, And they brought this one in and opened it. It explodes again with um, three 22 shells. One of them hits Anthony Lenza. One of them hits his boy, who is there, and one of them hits his 11-year-old granddaughter, Liza. Now, luckily, while um, all three of them were injured, none of them died. So, I mean, that's great. But they um, were, you know, looking at that, and yeah, that happened too. And again, with this one, is interesting because like in the Kip case, there were two barrels pointed in one direction and the other barrel pointed in the other direction. Exact opposite. And again, all of them were at so, so about two, the... So two forward and one opposite? Yes. Okay. And um, one officer, one investigator said it's almost like he is trying to take out somebody on the opposite side of the room with that one. Mm-hmm. So, you know, two people with one. But, um, yeah, and they were at about the angle, like in the Kip case, where they would have hit um, vital organs in the chest. Yeah. Vital organs or higher. So, yeah, you had that one, and... The next one... So that was wasn't... 10 years after the first one, right? Yes, 10 that, years. That's a long cooling-off period. It is. and I mean, we see it, it, it from time to time, but not frequently. No, we really don't. And um, between these two, the investigators said that they were pretty certain this was the same guy... And I would be inclined to believe them, considering the amount of detail that they withheld from the press. Right. Um, But there is this idea out there that, and this goes back to what Howard said in 1982 in an interview with the Brooklyn Spectator, where he said that he thought it was a joke gone bad by um, one of her students at that school. Hmm. Um, Basically, you know, maybe one that was suspended or what have you. That could fit the bill bill for Mr. Wavra. 
if you look at it. Yeah. If it was a joke gone bad. And it, as partial evidence for that, what he said was that his wife's cryptic words yeah. meant that she wanted him to call the principal at the school to warn other teachers. Mm. That's what he thought that meant. Um, yeah. Um, generally speaking, pranks involving bullets are not really pranks yeah yeah i mean i agree a prank you gone horribly wrong um which well we'll get to that other theory here after we I talk mean, about a i mean more if you're gonna do a prank you have a maybe a tiny amount of black powder that just goes poof or maybe a little tiny bang and it's shock ha 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 Surprise. Not a live round. Ever. Not a live right. round. <laughs> yeah. Not a yeah. barrel. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> yeah. But um, if you look at that, there is this idea that maybe it was just one person in 1982. Yeah. And maybe it was a copycat in 1993. I d it's one theory. Yeah, but uh, again, they would know... There were there would be I would suspect key differences in the device construction that the police would be able to mm -hmm. say yay or nay. I mean, you, you could definitely go, oh look, we've got this and this and this that are identical, so this is clearly the same guy. Yeah, I I mean I agree when you look at it, and like I said, the amount of detail that's being withheld with mm -hmm. that. You have to just trust the people who are examining this and have no reason to lie about it. Right. You know, but yeah, you had the Lenza package, which was mailed from um, Brooklyn. The uh, first one was mailed from, I believe, Staten Island. Okay. On the return addresses, but... Skip ahead about a year. April 5th, 1994. 75-year-old Seven, Brooklynite Alice Caswell receives a package. And this one, again, it's a, a commemorative coin blue velvet case. It's addressed to her uh, brother by the name of Richard McGarrell, who was a retired customs officer at the Newark airport. But he hadn't lived with her for about 15 years you know, before this okay. was sent. She opens it, and two 22 shells hit her in the abdomen. And uh, she uh, luckily made her way to a neighbor's house as she was bleeding out. And she survived, too. Wow. Yeah. It's 75, and she survived, which is just excellent. But that really stood out to me, too, with 15 years, and they didn't know that guy was there? Yeah. Somebody maybe, had some old information, right? Yeah, something. But this also kind of starts to show the uh, pattern that we're seeing with that. All three of the addressees are civil servants, right? Some sort of position. Okay. Like that. 
Um, but we skip ahead again to the next attack. June 27th, 1995. 18-year-old Stephanie Gaffney, who um, lives in Queens at her grandparents' house. by the, Their grandparents' name are, is Gilmore. She receives a package that the um, police were rather mum on what exactly this package was, mm-hmm. but she said it was a book. I'm not sure why they would withhold that particular bit of information, especially if Miss Gaffney had already said that in a different account. But um, she said, you know, it, the package looked legitimate. And it was addressed to, again, her grandfather. This one was interesting, too, because it actually said Gilmore or Occupant on it. Oh, interesting. It kind of makes you wonder if maybe he didn't learn from the attack on Alice Caswell. You know, that um, Mr. McGarrell was no longer living there. Hmm. But... It's addressed to Gilmore or Occupant, which she assumes is her grandfather, who is a retired NYPD officer. And her um, uncle, as well, was a narcotics officer who was responsible for um, bringing down a Dominican drug gang in the city. But she opened it, and again, um, you had shrapnel that... Luckily, none of them penetrated her body. She was about eight months pregnant when this happened to Miss Gaffney. She just suffered burns from it when it happened. But they took her to the hospital right away and induced labor because they were worried about the kid. Right. And uh, luckily, she had a healthy baby girl. So, and her and her little girl were fine. So and, what, uh, what was the so the composition of the device was different then? It um, sounds like. Well, you know, I think this one might be more how she was holding it okay. when it opened. Um, she said that she had it at a pretty acute angle from her okay. when it opened. Uh, so that could be why she was just burned from it. Um. And, yeah, that was another very, very bizarre attack. And skip ahead again, about one year, to June 20th, 1996. There's a uh, retired real estate agent by the name of Richard Basile who um, received a package that looked like a videotape, which it was addressed to his wife, who also worked in the uh, real estate office with him. Okay. I uh, actually asked a agent that I know who's been in the game for a while, because uh, all these packages have been basically tailored to the individual that they thought was receiving it, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it wouldn't have been out of line for a uh, real estate agent to receive a videotape that's usually like a walkthrough of the building or what have you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but it's all online one, now. But back in yeah. the day, you had to have physical media. Yeah, and '96 is basically pre-internet anyway, in the way that we're talking about it. But yeah. this um, videotape 
he cut his wife's package open. The tape explodes in their kitchen. Um, neither of them were injured, though. It just oh. blew out their window. Whoa. <laughs> so, um, this talk, one... Talk about dodging a bullet. <laughs> yeah, literally. Literally. Dodging at least probably two of them. Yeah. But, um, yeah. It just blew out the window. This one was interesting, though. I couldn't find any evidence that his wife was somehow in civil service or the military, mm. the way all the others had been. Okay. But um, interestingly, on this package, our guy was getting a little bit more bold because guess what he put as the return address? March of Dimes of Greater New York. What? Yeah. Yeah. Um, the police said it wasn't their official label on it, but he apparently used their name and address. Hmm. So, that, after that attack, they pretty much just fizzled out. Really? There hasn't just... been another one. It just stopped. So, so the guy that was our early prime suspect, Stephen Wavra. Yeah. So, is he still alive? Was he in prison? Was he? Could he have been? Was he free to do all of them? And did he ever get incarcerated or hospitalized or dead or anything like that? After my that understanding, he's still alive. Okay. Um, he would be about, well, when did I say he was born? He'd be about, what, early 60s, roughly, Okay. right now. But he wasn't out of prison that um, first time until 2005. But um, there are some other kind of fishy connections here. And maybe they're just um, sort of general. Maybe they don't mean anything. But police who thought he was a good suspect found records of either him or his roommate in the computer of local pharmacies next to each of the victims' places of residence what? or very near. I don't know how they thought to check that. Right. But um, they found these records. Yeah, why, why pharmacies, of all things? It makes me wonder. They didn't even give a name of the roommate in any of the articles that I read. Okay. But it makes me wonder if he didn't have a history of drug abuse. Maybe he was doctor in pharmacy shopping. Hmm. And that was how they thought to do that. But with the connections there with Wavra... They said that it always popped up at a pharmacy or somehow in the victim's neighborhood, but they can never pin down why. It was just always there, and it, breathed, it um, bred more questions than answers once you get down to it. Yeah, that is, that is very curious. Yeah, why they would be in all of those. Yeah, but, you know... Um... You can you can make a case based on probabilities like that. Like it's like 
you know, it, this is completely outside of random. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, when you look at all of the um, amount of pharmacies in the five boroughs of New York City on yeah. top of it. Right. But, um, yeah, they could never figure out a connecting thread there. But there was the uh, other big theory that one camp of the cops was looking at is interesting because you had these different investigative camps that cropped up among these different agencies and people looking at it. You had the cops that still liked the kits for it, even with these other bombings. Really? Yeah. Well, yeah, you know, you have... I, I swear to God, some some detectives, man, they're like a dog with a bone. Yeah. They kind of get myopic about it. Yeah. You know? I mean, they do get myopic, but in it, for my money, there's really nothing that ties the kips to any of this. Once you look at it. I mean, and with Craig, they were trying to make the argument that because, the, uh, because Howard's business involved installing um, various electrical devices on ships' boilers that Craig somehow knew how to build those bombs from that. What? Yeah. Oh, come on. That doesn't follow to me no. at all. And in fact, Howard said that to them. He said, this kid hasn't even taken physics, and you expect him to build a sophisticated mail bomb. Right. Um, and in fact, one of the postal inspectors, he had an interesting quote where he said, there are no unsophisticated mail bombs. You have to have a good degree of sophistication to build one, period, Yeah, is what he said. I mean, you don't, nece you don't necessarily acquire that in school, but you've got to have some hands-on, you know, uh, yeah. understanding of the uh you know the forces involved and the mechanics involved and the engineering involved oh definitely and i think that this guy it's pretty fair to say had a knowledge and an understanding of guns and how they work too yeah he'd have to yeah but yeah you had these two different camps you had the one who liked the kips and then you had the ones who we're looking really close at Wavra and liked him for it. Yeah. And um, it just, it sort of went on from there and they can never get enough evidence for anybody. Wow. Any of them. Although there was one cop who said in 2010 that we might just be one interview away from solving this. Um, I don't know exactly how, but... Well, I mean, that's always the case, isn't it? Yeah, and they were being kind of weird with how they were dropping some of the information. That same year, there was a cop who said, and I quote, we have a new development. And the only elaboration that he gave on that, this is an ongoing investigation. He didn't say anything else. Hmm. It seemed very weird to me that you would drop just that bit of information without saying more. 
Well, it's probably a good thing you didn't say more because it sounds like it didn't pan out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it definitely didn't, but... Yeah, it... I mean, for my money, again, I think Wavra is one who probably could be looked at more. And is definitely a better suspect than the Kips were. Yeah. So it sounded to me like you had some people who were trying to railroad that family. And it turned out with that, Howard remarried and moved to Massachusetts. Not sure when he died, but he probably, I mean, it was 2002 and he was 77, I think, mm. when they were talking to him. And uh, Stephen Kipp, he was going to move with his wife Susan out to San Diego before his mom was murdered. And it turned out they moved to Connecticut. And he had a job at a uh, computer place as a foreman doing something. Okay. And he lost that. And when they caught up with him in 2002, he was just a cashier at a 7-Eleven. So it sounded like it kind of destroyed that poor kid. Yeah. I've said it before in this show. Murder kills families. Yeah. It really does. It's just very sad. Yeah. So that was a big part of the case that they were trying to build there. The cops first hypothesized that Howard fired Stephen from his job. And from there, they tried to basically spin this narrative that Steve, or that um, Craig, rather, he, he fired Craig from his job. Sorry, I'm getting too confused there for a second. Yeah. And Howard fired Craig which Howard said was unequivocally wrong, in that from there, the hate for his parents just festered and festered. And Howard again said that's unequivocally crap, was his word. Um, he said that the reason that Craig uh, lost his job with the Marine Company is that he just wasn't good at it. And... <laughs> You know, and they all right. felt that it was good for him to move on. He wasn't fired, he quit. Okay. So. He quit before he was fired. Yeah, probably. Probably. So, if he was mad at anybody, he'd be mad at the company. Yeah, most likely. If family businesses can get weird. I Take that from me, I work oh, in yeah. one. But, um, yet... From what it sounded like, it was just a wholly manufactured bullshit, for lack of a better term. Sure. Um, but, yeah, I mean, there's still, as far as I can tell, there is still a $100,000 reward for information on this, too. If anybody hears this and knows anything. Yeah, if I can find, if you know the... anything, get in touch with us. <laughs> <laughs> well, if I can find it, I haven't been able to yet. But if I can find a contact with the feds or with the NYPD for tips with that, and yeah. somebody is listening to this who knows something, I'll post it on our Facebook page. So I was looking for that and I didn't see anything, but you know it. It's weird, man. One of yeah. the weirdest cases in New York history. 
once you Very get down much. to it. You know, he doesn't actually qualify as a serial killer, does he? Because he only killed, what, two people? No, he only killed one. Oh, he only killed one person. So definitely not a serial killer. No. But still, this is the kind of behavior that, you know, as they say often with serial killers, they don't stop on their own. No. And it, that gets to actually the last theory that may be worth looking at. Okay. He had some investigators who think that this might be extortion with the different people. And they base that on a lot of the, uh, the victims, when they interviewed them, were the word they used was reticent. And um, oh. one cop said that it was like they just wanted to be left alone and to just move on from it. Oh, really? That may just be how they reacted. I don't know. Yeah, but everybody? I mean, it, not necessarily all of them, but they said that there was more than a few yeah, who were like I, that. That seems odd. I mean... One, maybe, okay, because you never know how people will react, but you start getting a pattern of that, that is that is weird. Yeah, I mean, it definitely is, and it could, in theory, cast new light on those cryptic words Joan told Howard as she bled out on her couch. Oh. So, what she said could mean... A kid, a troubled kid. Yeah. Maybe it means maybe extortion. Now, the police did say they looked at organized crime in the Kip case, yeah. but nothing came of it. But it doesn't have to be organized crime necessarily no. for extortion either. No. Could be individuals. Yeah. And in which case, I think the extortion hypothesis might also explain why he waited 10 years from the first one. He got a little, he didn't want to kill her. He wanted to scare her. Uh And once she died, he gets rattled and he sits on basically what he's doing until 93 when he can perfect it a little bit more to where he's not killing any of them. Hmm. And in which case, maybe he stopped in 1996 because his job was done. It, it's one theory. Maybe he and had it, a, enough money to, to go wherever he wanted to go. That very well could be. And in which case, his task was done. He yeah. didn't feel he had to do any more. Now, that I mean, it all that makes sense. I think it might it make more does, sense yeah. than some of the others. Either that one, or I think Wavra might be good for it too. I mean, just yeah. from looking at it. But yeah, I mean the the serial bomber who technically wasn't a serial bomber. <laughs> What'd you yeah. get down to? Yeah, right. Zip gun's not a bomb, y'all. So it is kind of misleading. But yeah, those are just 
some of them that I found on the net, a lot of those were actually made in prisons. Where um, zip guns can be very popular weapons along with shivs that they seize. Gotcha. But. So interesting using a zip gun um, wouldn't leave any traceable striations on the bullet, would it? Because no. No, there's no rifling. Nope. None at all. And, you know, it gets back to something interesting, too. If you look for plans on the Internet of how to build these things, yeah. most of them that come back are actually for a 12-gauge shotgun shell. Wow. And it, Yeah. And it makes you wonder, why wouldn't you use those if you were building a bomb? You, would. you know what I mean? If, you, if you're building a bomb, mm-hmm. yeah, absolutely. Um, it's definitely not as surgical as what this guy did. Right. But, it, but bombs really are. So uh, shotgun uh, materials are definitely more conducive to building a bomb because you have the powder and you have the shot pellets. Right? Yeah. When you exactly. it. Uh, and now 20, that gets 22 is not good I mean it might be fine for a zip gun but it's not good for a bomb no not at all and it, it got me to wonder maybe he didn't use the shotgun shells because of the difference in powder between that and a 22 I mean even with double the powder in there which he did for every single round yeah. that he packed it's about 80 grains of powder. Mm-hmm. Um, even with double that, that's nowhere near the amount that's in a typical 12 gauge. Oh, no, no, no. No. But. Yeah. Well, uh, my theory on why he doubled the powder is because there wasn't rifling. And yeah, it, it makes sense. Because you don't. So. You, you know, when a when a rifle round is fired, you know the 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 primer is ignited, which like ignites the powder, which pushes the bullet mm-hmm. out of the casing into the barrel. But it doesn't fit into the barrel, right? Right. And right. So, it doesn't. So it needs a, it builds up a lot of pressure to push it out, and that's what gets the velocity going once it exits the barrel but when you're using a fucking brake liner it's not mm-hmm. a tight fit no not so, at all and so that's why you would need extra powder to push it out because mm-hmm. you don't you don't build up any pressure and especially when you consider that there wasn't a primer with any of these that he literally took the base off of each round yeah before he put it in which By the I way, would, I would have used a model rocket engine igniter. Yeah. Interesting. You know, when I was looking at this, the plans that I saw for a 22 zip gun, yeah. they said that a 5.8 millimeter drill bit will get you the perfect fit for it oh. in, in the plans that I saw. But if he didn't do that, you know, with the brake line, it's going to be open. Right. Like we said. Um, I'm not sure what the circumference is on one of those. 
me. I, I should have looked that up. I don't either. Oh. But uh, for people who don't know, a primer on a bullet is on the shotgun shell right there. It's right in the middle. It's what is struck and it ignites the powder on the inside. Yeah, it's a chemical reaction from the pressure that causes the ignition of the mm -hmm. primer. And then the primer, you know, when it fires up, it lights the powder. Yep. But with this, like we said, with the construct of that bomb, it was literally the electrical wire fed right into yep. where the gunpowder is. Yep. So you wouldn't need it. Or it would act as a primer, you could also say. Exactly. Which, um, interestingly, that's also, from my research I found, that's also how they would send off quite a few heavy artillery shells is through an yes. electric yes. primer. Right. Um, yeah, so heavy art, some of the heavy artillery, uh, you know, the medium and light artillery will have fully contained shells. And, you know, they look like giant, you know, rifle rounds. Mm -hmm. um, but the, you get up bigger where you you just can't build a case big enough to hold all of that shit. No. <laughs> and it would no, rupture anyway. Yeah, exactly. And it, you were saying it's about 20 pounds of powder in one right, of those so, bags for a heavy round? Yeah, so the the big guns on a, on the old battleships, yeah, they were huge bags of gunpowder that they would so they would they would load the the shell mm -hmm. into the breech and then they would load one to three different bags of powder. Jeez. Uh, yeah, it is a it, lot of gunpowder. It is a lot. Well, those and the shells weighed as much as a Volkswagen. Yep. And they can yep. shoot those over the horizon. Wow. So, yeah. <laughs> but, um, yeah, and you look at that, and like we were saying for, again, people who don't know that much about ballistics, the gunpowder in a bullet is measured in grains. And grains, I had to look this up when I was doing mathematical conversions yeah. between the shotgun shell and the twenty two shell. Yeah. There are 7,000 grains in a pound. Okay. So in a 20-pound bag, you're looking at 140,000 grains of powder. <laughs> and in the typical 22 shell, you're looking at 40 grains of powder. Wow. <laughs> yeah. And, it, well, that is in a typical 22-long shell. Right. Which I assume you use because those are more common than a 22-short. Yeah, uh, I would say, yeah, the longs are, the longs and long rifles are easier to come by, generally speaking. But they're, none of them, it's hard. It's not hard to get any of it. Yeah. I mean, well, you, in you, the you commonality. Just the sporting goods store and get it. It's not, it's not difficult. Yeah, and, and back they wouldn't in the ask 80s, a lot of questions. Back in the 80s, you could just go to the hardware store. A lot of them had it. You know. Oh, sure. Well, and that's the same way with the 12 gauges, too. Yeah. There weren't a lot of questions asked, like nope. we were saying. Nobody's going to ask a question. Yeah. Except and that maybe what very... are you going after? <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, and that is very, very important 
when you're looking at building something that is a bomb or a zip gun bomb is commonality because the more common the stuff is, the less they're going to be able to trace the ingredients that are left. But so here's the weird thing, though, is you could just buy the components. You can buy a case, a can of smokeless powder Mm -hmm. and and bullets of whatever caliber you want and not 22 though i i take that back you probably cannot buy just 22 um slugs because nobody reloads it because you can't Mm -hmm. yeah it wouldn't totally be worth it well not only worth it but you can't you, you can't reuse the brass very true yeah, I came across quite a few forums about um, reloading mm-hmm. a lot of ammo when I was looking through this stuff. I've done a little but... bit of it, too, um, mm-hmm. years ago. Interesting. Uh, I'm sure quite a few people here have, too. you got so many hunters in this area. Yeah, if you're going to shoot any quantity at all, you gotta you got to reload. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, I mean, I would assume even in New York City, with their stricter gun laws, they wouldn't ask a lot of questions, even back then. No, no, no. The questions are asked about the weapons, not about the ammunition. Mm Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. You just Uh, have to be of age. And back in, you know, back in the 80s, that was, you know, I don't even know if there was an age restriction on it ammo purchases Uh, probably not and it just reminds me of like my dad telling me stories about back then when he could drink when he was 18 too yeah but hey man it's just so this case is just one of them that it's more questions the more you look at it than really anything yeah very much so uh and you know the the handmade nature of the devices make it so you know if you're using common materials how do you track that shit down oh exactly and um interesting with this a lot of people have heard of the anarchist cookbook by william powell that details a lot of you know these types of weapons and how to make them yeah it's not out of the realm of possibility that whoever did this could have actually learned from Powell's primary sources, which he got from the U.S. Combat Bookshelf at the New York Public Library. Uh-huh. Did they even go to see who checked those out? I'm sure they probably didn't. But I mean, there's that, and then there's you know all these... That's one thing I needed to look at, whether some of these other field manuals on how to make this stuff were included in that U.S. combat bookshelf. I mean, so much of that now, including the anarchist cookbook, you can find, you know, just as a PDF with a Google search. But, yeah. Oh, and another thing that also kind might feed into the... uh, the extortion idea. Joan was a officer on a community board in her area of Brooklyn. 
that was essentially a uh, conglomeration of um, government entities, quasi-government entities, and like nonprofits. And she was actually running for the VP of that. And she was slated. I mean, people thought she was going to win before all this happened. I mean, not saying that her character would make her amenable to that, because by all accounts, she um, was not that way. In fact, the principal who worked with her said she lived a very sheltered life, was her word, his okay. word. Um, but, you know, when you're in that sort of area, there's always the possibility that there's a rival or that yeah. somebody is looking to get dirt on you. Right. So. Possibility, man. Extortion. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it makes a lot of sense. It makes sense of how it, it is a way that these people could be connected. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That they just, they hadn't seen or what have you. But, yeah, I mean, I think it's totally wrong how they treated the Kips there. And at the very least, Wavra was a better suspect than them. Yeah, yeah. Well, we got to do a better job of training up our de- investigators and detectives and prosecutors and better job of incentivizing the right things with these people yeah and ways to uh, make sure that these cognitive biases don't happen so you know i'm not trying to you know monday morning quarterback the hell out of that or anything you know hindsight is 2020 but i think it's not out of line to ask them to learn from these sorts of mistakes too well, yeah, but then you you the problem is is if they don't have the right attitude, they're going to say what mistake? I was right. We just didn't mm-hmm. we just couldn't prove it. Yeah. And even showing them all the evidence that says they weren't right, they'll still stick to it. Exactly. But Yeah, that is the weirdest serial bombing case in US history, I think arguably. Yeah, absolutely. You know, not, no... not the most destructive by any means. Not the uh-uh. most terrorizing by any means, but definitely weirdest. Yeah, I mean, you're talking about somebody who didn't leave any sort of clue as to a demand beyond maybe that one um, note in the Joan Kipp cookbook. Yeah. You know, and you usually got guys like the Unabomber who leave a full manifesto. <laughs> right? You just can't shut them up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that's um, one thing that actually Stephen Kip or Stephen Wavra did was write a manifesto. It was like 250 pages and rambling, but it had nothing to do with bombings. Yeah. So, could be connected, could not be connected. We may never know. Yep. In fact, Might I would not. bet that that's the likely case. I would bet so as well. It is a fair, fair assessment. All right, then. Thank you, sir, once more for exhaustive research. 
My pleasure. Good night, everybody. Good night. Wow, 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 wow,